Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a talk with Michael Lerner that he gave at the Smith Center for Healing and the Arts on April 26, 2014. The title of this talk is Body, Soul, and Spirit in Archetypal Psychology. A note to our listeners, the source recording we received had a lot of extra noise in it, but the content was such that we felt it outweighed the limitations of the audio. We have processed and filtered the audio as best we can. So now, please join us for Michael Lerner. Well, it's a joy to be here. I've just recovered from uh, one of those cold coughs that's been going around. I spent the last three days sitting in my room praying that I would be able to talk to you tonight. So this is an experiment, but I think I am able to speak. Um, This afternoon, just to get a little sun, I was out in DuPont Circle. I don't know if this happens every Saturday, but there was an old-timey bluegrass band playing, and there must have been a hundred young couples, mostly young, dancing to this, this wonderful music. And you know, I just sat there in the sun and I just watched, I mean, there were some older people dancing, but there were a lot of young people dancing. Just such an affirmation of life, you know? Just such an affirmation of life to, you know, sit in the sun and listen to this old-timey music and watch these young people dance. And I thought, man, it just keeps going on, you know? It just keeps going on. So, yes, tonight I'm going to talk about body, soul, and spirit and archetypal psychology. And um, I'm going to ask you, every time I come here just about, I give a new talk. So there's nothing polished about this talk. Because these talks are a way of letting me listen to myself. Uh, My father, who was a teacher, used to say, how do I know what I think until I hear what I say? And so I have that sense, too, you know, that I don't really know what I think until I hear what I say. Um, But there's some basic questions here. Uh, First of all, what is an archetype? Second is, what is soul? Third is, what is spirit? And fourthly, why do any of these things matter in your life or mine? And tonight, I'm not going to offer you any kind of solution, but rather a way of thinking about our lives a way of enhancing our capacity to find meaning in our lives, whatever life presents us with. Because, and this is where, if I were giving my cancer talk, which is a talk about choices in healing and medical therapies and integrative therapies in pain and suffering and in death and dying, I would say to you that of those five domains that the choices in healing is the deepest one, And Choices in Healing is really about finding meaning in our lives in the midst of crisis. So in a sense, this is a deep dive into the issue of of healing, but looked at in the spirit of archetypal psychology. So, you know, today, when we think about integrative medicine, and this has been true for the last 30 years, and I absolutely participated in it, We think, we talk about mind-body medicine, or we talk at most about mind-body-spirit medicine, but we don't say a word about soul. And if we are asked about soul, we assume that soul and spirit are basically the same thing. But the truth of the matter is that in the great traditions, 
going back to Plato uh, and, uh, and, and in the Egyptian traditions also, they made a tremendously important distinction between soul and spirit. Soul and spirit were not the same things. We've lost that distinction. And therefore, the purpose for me of this exploration of archetypal psychology is to help us rediscover soul and to understand the critical distinction between soul and spirit. The ancients saw soul as the vital mediator between body and spirit. Spirit is lightning fast, and it takes us up. So, you know, meditation techniques uh, and all kinds of things like that, spiritual paths, you know, at least on the West Coast, somebody will introduce you and say, she's on a spiritual path, or he's on a spiritual path, or whatever. Being on a spiritual path is somehow an affirmation that that person is going upward into these transcendent capacities to look down on suffering and to watch everything with perfect peace of mind and so forth. That's what these spiritual paths teach. They're enormously powerful in that regard, and they're very important. But spirit is not the only piece, because soul is... Uh, so spirit is solar, takes us up toward the light, it carries our aspirations to enlightenment. Soul, by contrast, the traditions say, is slow, it's dark and moist, it's lunar, it stays close to the body, and the soul carries our desires and our dreams and our fears. We aspire through spirit, but we experience life through soul. By confusing soul and spirit, we have lost our way. Now, the founder of modern, I'll come back to Jung, but the founder of modern archetypal psychology is a man named James Hillman. And uh, James Hillman and Thomas Moore and others have elucidated this soul-based psychology, looking at the psyche uh, from the perspective of soul, which is an important contrast to say, a Buddhist psychology, which tends to take you upward again into the light. So I'm going to read a passage uh, from Hillman. Uh, I've called this talk Peaks and Veils, and I've been aiming to draw apart these images, peaks and veils, to contrast them as vividly as I can. Uh, the contemporary meaning of peak was developed by Abraham Maslow, who was in turn resonating an archetypal image for peaks that belong to the spirit ever since Mount Sinai and Mount Olympus, Mount Parmos and Mount of Olives, and Mount Moriah of the first patriarch Abraham. The language Maslow used about peak experience, quote, self-validating, self-justifying, and carrying its own intrinsic value with it, the godlikeness and god-nearness, the absolutism and intensity, is a traditional way of describing spiritual experiences. Maslow deserves our gratitude for having reintroduced pneuma, that is spirit, into psychology, even if his move has, compounded, has been compounded by the old confusion of pneuma with psyche, pneuma being spirit, psyche being soul. But what about the psyche of psycho psychology? Veils do indeed need more exposition, just as everything to do with soul needs to be carefully imagined as accurately as we can. Veil comes from the romantic, 
Keats, the poet John Keats, used the term in a letter, and I've taken this passage from Keats as a psychological motto, and perhaps some of you have heard this. It's a very famous line from Keats. Call the world, if you please, a veil, the veil of soul-making. Then you will find out the use of the word. Um, so uh, this concept of um, the peaks being associated with spirit and the veils, the veil of soul-making, which is this world being associated with soul, is a really fundamental distinction that I want to hope that sticks with you and encourages you to explore. Because if all we do is to try to move up into, quote, higher places of spirit, of enlightenment, of detachment, right? Detachment from all that's going on. Then we leave behind not only the body, but this whole profound dimension of us, which is our soul, which is dark, which is moist, through which we actually experience the world, which carries all our sorrows, our joys. It's the, the linkage between spirit and body. And this has been profoundly ignored by, the, by humanistic psychology, by transpersonal psychology, by positive psychology. They all try to fix us. They all try to move us up. But there is this stubborn dimension of us, for any of you who have tried to do that, that stays close to the body, that hurts, that aches, that yearns, that desires. And if we don't pay attention to that, if we don't pay attention to that dimension of us, it comes back in distorted forms and bites us. As Jung once said, the gods, which used to you know, exist and we understood all their differences, have disappeared in the outer world and show up in the clinical room as our symptoms. In other words, the gods, because we ignore them, come back to bite us as symptoms. Whereas if we acknowledge them and pay attention to them, and recognize the soul dimension of us as well as the spirit dimension of us, then they don't have to bite us because we can learn how to live with them. Here's, here's Helen again. The main thing about the anima is just what has always been said about the psyche. It is unfathomable, ungraspable. For the anima, the archetype of life, as Jung called her, is that function of the psyche which is its actual life, the present mess it is in, the discontent, dishonesties, and thrilling illusions, together with the whitewashing hopes for a better outcome. The issues she presents are as endless as the soul is deep, and perhaps these very endless labyrinthine problems are its depth. The anima embroils and twists and screws us to the breaking point, performing the function of relationship, another of Jung's definition, a definition that becomes convincing only when we realize that relationship means perplexity. So you see, we're not encouraged to think this way. We want to leave the mess behind. We want to transcend it. But we're not designed that way. We're designed with soul as well as spirit. And if we leave the mess behind, it comes after us in even harder ways. So what are archetypes themselves? If we have this image of body, soul, spirit, soul is the mediator between spirit and body, what are the archetypes? The archetypes are the forms or patterns that recur endlessly within us and around the world. 
they come to us in dreams. They come to us as intuition. They come to us collectively as myths. And myths not in a sense, you know, in other words, we live in such a material world that the word imagination, for example, which in archetypal psychology, the imagination is reality. We see reality through images. It is reality. It's nothing trivial. But similarly, uh, the archetypes are the ongoing forms that show up in our images, in our imagination. And Joseph Campbell, in his great work on the power of myths, demonstrated, as Carl Jung demonstrated, that you see these archetypes, you see these patterns in myths all around the world. So there are these common containers, patterns, uh, forms. The oldest use of the term archetype that we know of probably is in Plato, in, where his ideal forms were in fact archetypes. And so this concept of archetypes as the forms that thought and feeling take in us is very, very ancient. And they, and so this, these sets of forms that are within us, conscious or unconscious, are what the archetypes are. So image is the language of the psyche. It's the language of the soul. But not all soul images are visual images. So uh, soul images, archetypes, can also be sensed or felt or intuited. So when I speak of images, I'm not just speaking of a visual image, but of forms or patterns that can come to us in other ways. Archetypes, by the way, I have a tremor, which you've already noticed. It's called benign tremor. It's not Parkinson's. It's not going to kill me, so let it go. And let me just shake up here without distraction. <coughs> um, so archetypes surround us. So a very common one, you've all seen the book, Men are from Mars, Women are from Venus, right? Well, that's a huge oversimplification, but that's a description of archetypes. The 12 signs of the zodiac are clearly archetypes. You know, that's what they are. So are the 12 gods of the Greek Parthenon. Uh, you know, the, the Hindu gods are archetypes. Um, the, the, the seasons of a human life, when we think of spring, summer, fall, winter in a human life, those are archetypes of a life fitting with nature. We're thinking in natural terms, archetypes of a human life. They're the archetypal roles the role of the husband and the wife, of the mother and the child, of sisters and brothers, of lovers and friends. Each of these evoke in us archetypes filled with significance. We could spend an hour on every one. Everything we see, feel, and think takes form in one archetype or another. Most of the time, we are unconscious of the power of the archetypes within and around us. So the archetypes come from within as dreams and intuition, from without, they come as the sustaining myths of our families and cultures. So myths, you know, when both Freud and Jung and all the depth psychologists have talked about dreams as the royal road to consciousness. In other words, listening to our dreams is how we really connect with our souls and our spirits and what's going on within us. Um, so archetypes are those images that come to us in dreams, that come to us in intuitions and feelings and sensing. Um, and, and we have this whole set of different archetypes within us. Joseph Campbell says that myths have four functions. And I like this very much. He says that one function is their mystical function, which is to enable us to see 
the profound mystery of life. The second is its cosmological function, which is to show us our place in the cosmos. The third is the societal function of myths, which are either to support a vision of a social order or to support a critique of a social order. But somehow we all have myths, every person in this room have a myth about our place not only in relationship to the great mystery, not only in relationship to the cosmos, but also in relationship to society. And those myths of our relationship to society are, you know, either that we celebrate its beauties or critique it or both, but those are archetypal forms. They're mythic forms. And the fourth uh, function of myth, uh, Campbell says, is pedagogical. It's a teaching function, which is to show us how to live our lives in, in the places we find ourselves. Now, I mentioned that Carl Jung is the true father of archetypal psychology. And among his most famous archetypes are the wounded healer. I'll come back to that. The wise old man or wise old woman. The myth of meaning, and I'm going to come back to that. The alchemical marriage. And the archetypes of love and meaning. So there are many, 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 hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of archetypes. But there are certain central archetypes. And these are among the central archetypes that Jung talked about. The key point about the archetypes for the ancient mystery schools and for the Renaissance Neoplatonist Marsilio Ficino, who uh, James Hillman returned to to found archetypal psychology, if I have time I'll talk about Ficino more, is that these archetypes are autonomous energy structures. In other words, they're not just some passive fantasy of ours, they actually have energetic power of their own, they have a mind of their own, so to speak, and that mind works through us, and if we try to thwart it, it pushes back. So, you see, for the ancients, the archetypes, let's just take the Greek gods of the, of the Parthenon, the, uh, the Greek gods the, the ancient Greeks experienced the gods as actively moving through them. They didn't think of these archetypes as just some inner fantasy. They thought, if I'm angry, you know, it is Hera being angry at Zeus for sleeping around with some young nymphette or whatever. Or if, you know, if I'm appreciating beauty, it is Athena working through me. Or, you know, the different gods... They experience them as coming through them. I mean, just as powerfully as we might experience um, something coming through us, something physical in the world coming through us. They experienced these gods as coming through them. So for Jung, Jung couldn't say, well, these gods exist in the, some abstract outer world. But by looking around the world at all the mythic structures, which kept repeating the same forms, same archetypes over and over again, he knew that in the psyche, in the collective unconscious and the individual unconscious, these gods were real. They were as real as anything we see in daylight or a car passing by. They were real in the imaginal world. And because the imaginal world is the world that we actually sense through, these gods have enormous potency. And not only were they real, but they had autonomous energy structures. So again... If, if we try to ignore them or thwart them, they push back. And if we thwart and ignore them a whole lot, we may become ill or neurotic 
or depressed or anxious because we're not listening to that particular dimension of the divine. Now Jung saw the study of dreams and myths, as I've said, as the path to understanding ourselves and the world. And virtually all the great depth psychologists after Freud and Jung believed the same thing. He came to believe that the greatest myth of all is the myth of meaning. Do our lives have meaning or not? This is a really big deal that all of us have to contemplate. Does life itself have meaning? Jung answered yes, but it was a careful yes. Anelia Jaffe describes his journey in her beautiful book, The Myth of Meaning. Jaffe, of course, worked very, very closely with Jung. Um, she uh, collaborated with him on Memories, Dreams, and Reflections, and she edited his collective letters, and she's an extraordinary, extraordinary figure in, in depth psychology. And so here's a passage. Um, here are two passages. Um, Jung's myth of meaning is the myth of consciousness. The metaphysical task of man resides in the continual expansion of consciousness at large. In other words, Jung was saying, our task is to make the unconscious conscious in our lives. And by the way, he said, that only happens through suffering. So Jung really felt that consciousness was bought only at the expense of suffering. So the metaphysical task of man resides in the continual expansion of consciousness at large and his destiny as an individual in the creation of individual self-awareness. It is consciousness that gives the world a meaning. It is consciousness that gives the world a meaning. Without the reflecting consciousness of man, the world is a gigantic, meaningless machine. For as far as we know, man is the only creature that can discover meaning. And then he wrote, there was a young woman who had been struck heavily by blows of fate, and he wrote to her, the boon of increased self-awareness is sufficient answer even to life's suffering. Otherwise, it would be meaningless and unendurable. Through the suffering of creation, which God left imperfect, though the suffering of creation, which God left imperfect, cannot be done away with, by the revelation of the good God's will to man, yet it can be mitigated and made meaningful. So, um, so here's the key passage here. One naturally asks oneself whether a man-made meaning is of any value and whether the impossibility of discovering an objective meaning would be better answered with an admission of meaninglessness. Recall in mind that Jung is writing at the end of World War II. All the belief structures that had sustained European civilization for millennia have been destroyed by the two world wars. And so what is happening? Heidegger and Sartre and others are claiming that there is no meaning, that there's just nothing. You know, and Camus and others. 
that meaning only, the only meaning there is is the meaning we assign to things, that there is no fundamental meaning. So that is the context, which goes on today. I mean, you ask, you know, 100 people, probably 30 of them in the United States will say there is no meaning. The, the United States is a religious country, so 70% will say yes, there is. But in Europe, it's probably 70% it has no meaning because it's a very secular uh, part of the world. So one naturally asks whether man-made meaning is of any value and whether the impossibility of discovering an objective meaning would not be better answered with an admission of meaningless, meaninglessness. Jung answered no to this question. His denial was not only the expression of a deeply religious temperament, but also the outcome of his experience as a psychotherapist and doctor. Quote, meaninglessness inhibits fullness of life and is therefore equivalent to illness. He saw neurosis as, quote, ultimately the suffering of a soul which has not discovered its meaning, whereas meaning has inherent curative power. Quote, meaning makes a great many things endurable, perhaps everything. A universally valid formula for meaning does not exist, and up to the end of his life, Jung allotted a space for both meaning and meaninglessness in his scheme of things. Yet the creation of meaning is important insofar as the, quote, meaningful divides itself from the meaningless. When sense and nonsense are no longer identical, the force of chaos is weakened by their subtraction. Sense is then imbued with the force of meaning and nonsense with the force of meaninglessness. In this way, a new cosmos arises. So this is intense stuff, and I forgive me for laying it all on you, but the point here, there's a great line from Nietzsche, those who have a why to live can bear most any how. This is core, those who have a why to live can bear most any how. And this was a core, core concept. Now, I'm actually going to go to a place I was going to go to later. Um, but I'll go there directly now because we're talking about meaning. So another great apostle of the search for meaning, somebody, some, many of you have heard of Viktor Frankl. So Viktor Frankl was a Jewish uh, physician who ended up in Auschwitz uh, during uh, World War II, the uh, Nazi concentration camp. And he watched who survived and who did not survive at Auschwitz. Do you think it was the big, strong people who survived? It was not. It was the people who found some meaning that the Nazis could not take away from them. And so he wrote this book on his experience at Auschwitz called Man's Search for Meaning, published it in 1946. And he said, meaning predicts survival, quote, and this is a beautiful quote, we need to stop asking about the meaning of life in the abstract. Instead, think of ourselves as those being questioned by life daily and hourly. So he wasn't talking about meaning, you know, oh, I've got cancer, I've got to find my meaning in life, you know, in some abstract way, I'm going to sit and meditate and find my meaning. No, he was saying, the way you actually find meaning 
is to ask yourself that you are being queried. What does life ask of us this hour, this day? What are we being? What is being asked of us? And that is the true nature of an authentic quest for meaning. Um, Frankel believed that there were three paths to meaning. One was by creating a work or doing a deed. The second was by experiencing something, whether love or some a, ch a child that you care about or some other experience. And the third was the attitude we take toward unavoidable suffering or any other circumstance. So we can create meaning by giving money or support to somebody we see on the street. That creates meaning. We create a relationship with that person. We create can create meaning by uh, praying in a church or by deciding on a new perspective on what is happening to us. And that third approach, deciding on a new perspective or coming to a new perspective on unavoidable suffering, Frankl called the last freedom, by which he meant that even in a Nazi concentration camp, when all identity and all outer freedoms had been taken away, these people still had the opportunity to create meaning by the view they took of their own suffering. You're listening to a talk given by Michael Lerner on archetypal psychology at Smith Center for Healing in the Arts in Washington, D.C. Now, if this seems abstract, it's not abstract at all. This is the teaching of all the great spiritual traditions. In yoga, for example, there's a beautiful uh, verse, my favorite book, uh, verse in the Yoga Sutras, which says, the acceptance of our suffering as a aid to spiritual growth, the study of great wisdom teachings, and complete surrender to the divine force in each of us, these three things are yoga in practice. Notice he doesn't talk about stretching practices and breathing practices. He says, if you really want to understand yoga, which is union with ourselves and with the, with the divine, then understand that the way we get there is instead of running away from our suffering, to accept our suffering as a way to growth. Just as Jung talked about how consciousness is only found through suffering. So this teaching in all the spiritual traditions, I could go through a whole long list, is fundamental, fundamental, fundamental to inner growth. Um, so, again, Frankel is talking about the same thing that Jung was talking about, which is the path to meaning in our lives. So now, I'm going to go to the part of this which I've been, I've been working on this for two years now, uh, on archetypal psychology, and I've probably done ten conversations or interviews or talks on it, and I'm no more near into the depth of it, but I'll tell you one thing 
that came out to me that I think may be helpful to you. I have a friend and colleague at Commonweal named Rachel Naomi Remen. Some of you know her work. She wrote Kitchen Table Wisdom and My Grandfather's Blessings. And she's a very great uh, soul. She's a, she's a genius. Um, and she once said something, says it from time to time, that has always stu stuck with me. She says that she thinks that the purpose of life, which you could also read as the meaning of life, the purpose or meaning of life is to grow in wisdom and to learn to love better. The purpose of life is to grow in wisdom and learn to love better. She thinks. She can't enforce that on you. But she has that intuition. So let's look at that sentence closely. It has three parts. One is purpose. The second is wisdom. And the third is love, right? So I began to discover, as I read through the great spiritual traditions in depth psychology, that this pattern of love, wisdom, and purpose or will appeared again and again and again and again. And I began to think about it. What is wisdom, love, and will? I'll use will now instead of purpose. Why does it keep showing up? Well, what is wisdom? Wisdom in the anthroposophical tradition is the work of the head. What is love? It is the work of the heart. What is will? It is the work of the hands. So love, the heart, wisdom, the head, will, the hands. You know, those are the three things that just physiologically we work with. We work with our minds, we work with our hearts, and our hands represent not just our hands, but our whole bodies and beings, what we do in the world. So there's always been this understanding of wisdom and love, and how they don't always fit easily together. How wisdom often, like spirit, takes us up towards spirit. How love often takes us down towards soul. You know, uh, how difficult it is uh, in many, many circumstances to act and serve with both wisdom and compassion. They're often in tension with each other. So wisdom, love, and will in the anthroposophical tradition, the head, the heart, and the hands. In yoga, the three great yogas of the Bhagavad Gita, yana yoga, which is the yoga of wisdom, bhakti yoga, which is the yoga of love, and karma yoga, which is the yoga of purpose or the work of our hands. In philosophy, what do you find? Truth, beauty, and goodness. Truth is the work of wisdom. It's the search of wisdom. Beauty is what draws love. The soul loves beauty because the soul, you know, is attracted to beauty, and not just physical beauty, but beauty at all levels. And goodness is a form of the work of will, right? What did St. Paul talk about? Faith, hope, and love. And of these three, the greatest is love. So in the Christian tradition, faith is wisdom. Love speaks for itself. And hope is the hope that our work in the world will make a difference of some kind. So in the traditions we've been talking about, you know, spirit relates to wisdom and, you know, the head, broadly speaking. Soul relates to heart. And purpose or will relates to the body. So uh, in, if you think about it in, in uh, astrological terms, the sun, solar, wisdom, the moon, love, soul, heart, and the earth, child, you know, uh, what we create in the world. 
Um, so over and over and over again, I began to see this pattern, which now I see everywhere I look. Um, uh, you know, Freud asked what was really essential in life. He said love and work. That's two of the three. Rollo May, another great psychologist, made his central work as love and will. Uh, Carl Jung, uh, at the end of his life, said that what he kept coming back to at the final point is that love was the greatest mystery. So in the traditions, you have these three things, love, wisdom, and work in the world. And the question is how we balance the two, quote, higher functions of love and wisdom to integrate them in a way so that we can be skillfully of service in the world. Now, the great religions agree that love is the greatest of these three. You find that in the Bhagavad Gita. You find it in Christianity. You find it in Rudolf Steiner's work again and again and again. You find it in Emerson again and again and again. God is love. That is the highest thing. The philosophers take a different view because philosophy, if we think about it, philosophia, literally means love of wisdom. And so often for the philosophers, wisdom was the highest function. And so uh, Emerson has a beautiful line when he talks about this debate between love and wisdom, and he says, I will not get into the politics of the skies. You know, In other words, there is this difference of view between the philosophers that give wisdom the highest function and the religions uh, that give love the highest function. But nonetheless, uh, those are the great forces within us that somehow, one way or another, we have the opportunity to develop, to explore, and then try, because it's so difficult, to integrate in our work in the world or our karma yoga. So how do we live with these many different archetypes within us? And um, I'm going to talk about uh, a, a psychologist who deeply influenced Rachel Naomi Remen and our another beloved friend at Commonweal who passed a year ago, Lenore Leffer, um, whose name it was an Italian named Roberto Assagioli, who knew both Freud and Jung, and created a, a field of psychology called psychosynthesis. And um, I think there will actually be something useful to you in this, um, because his goal was to eliminate obstacles to our harmonious development and to use active techniques to stimulate integrating these different parts of us. So he created a really simple image in the shape of an egg. And he said, look, if you think about consciousness, you can think about it as an egg shape. And the bottom third of the egg is the lower unconscious, where our drives and fears sexuality, anger come up from. Then there's the middle unconscious where the tools that are useful to our daily life mostly exist. And then there's the higher unconscious where our spiritual yearnings and uh, so forth come down from. So while Freud only talked about a lower unconscious, Asajoli, like Jung, had a higher unconscious too. And both Asajoli and Jung believed that you could become just as neurotic by suppressing your higher drives, your higher intuitions, as you could by suppressing the lower one. So, and then in the center of this egg, 
was the self, the, the, the perception point from which we see the world. Now, here's a little exercise that you can try at home without a supervision of a doctor, right? If you sit down and make a list for yourself of what Asajoli called subpersonalities. So, for example, say to yourself, what are my different roles in this world or my different parts of me? So, for example, I am a father. I am a husband. I am a son. You know, I work with my colleagues at Smith Center and Commonweal. I'm deeply interested in archetypal psychology, so on and so forth. You make your list, okay? And then when you made your list, you write each one on a separate piece of paper, and you make a circle around you on the floor with these separate pieces of paper, and in the middle you put a blank piece of paper, which is the observation point, the self. And what you practice is stepping in and out of these different subpersonalities consciously. Because what happens in the course of the day is that you're constantly moving in and out of these without any consciousness of it. But so what psychosynthesis teaches is conscious identification and disidentification with these different subpersonalities. Now get this. What each subpersonality has behind it is a complex. And what each complex has behind it is an archetype. So what you're doing with this little subpersonality thing is to practice stepping in and out of the different archetypes that have power in your life. Do you follow what I'm saying? You know? So it becomes a very important thing because remember, we've talked about these archetypes as having enormous autonomous power in relationship to us. And if we ignore them, they come back and bite us. But if we practice moving in and out of them, what are we doing? We are paying due deference to the different gods that lie behind the subpersonalities and the complexes in the archetypes. We are giving them their due. We are recognizing them as to who they are. And so Asajoli's purpose uh, was um, to recognize the subpersonalities, to accept them, to learn how to coordinate them, to learn how to integrate and synthesize them in a little memnonic that some of his followers used. He was teaching you how to name them, claim them, recognize that you're, they're part of you, tame them, get them to work together, and then aim them, get them working in the same direction. So the idea was to name, claim, tame, and aim. All right? Now, I'm going to introduce another point of view, an argument with Asajoli from James Hillman. Because James Hillman is not interested in spirit. He thinks that spirit is so overdone in our uh, culture that all he wants to do is speak from the perspective of soul. And so he disparages Asajoli and all the humanistic and transpersonal and positive psychologies that seek to make us better people. So Hillman's powerful soul psychology does not seek to change us. It does not seek to make us better. It tries to show us a way of simply living in the mess of our lives in a more conscious way, you know? So there's a difference here, an important difference, and it's not an either-or difference because all of us have to spend some time out of pain, if nothing else, 
trying to move toward a better place. But sometimes we just have to sit with the mess we're in, you know. And that mess is the, the realm of soul. And so Hillman's response to Asajoli, he doesn't think you can name, claim, aim, and tame the, the archetypes. They're too powerful. He doesn't think you can do that. Kilman has a beautiful line about the soul. He says, each of us is like a boarding house. And there are some uh, people in our boarding house who come out and play by the rules during the day. There are others who come out only at night. And there are some who never come out of their rooms at all. You know? So you know, we all have all these different sub-personalities, these archetypes within us. And Hillman's approach to them, unlike Asajoli, who was trying to get them to work together a little better, was, hey, look, this is the mess we're in. Let's sit with it. Let's understand it. He likened us to ecologists who go into a jungle filled with extraordinary creatures. And instead of trying to tame them, we simply observe them as carefully as possible and try not to disturb them. So two different perspectives of depth psychology. Here's yet a third perspective from Joseph Campbell. Uh, we've just been talking about meaning, remember? He says, people say we're all seeking meaning for life. I don't think so. I think we're seeking an experience of being alive. So our life experience on the purely physical plane will have resonances with our innermost being and reality so that we actually feel the rapture of being alive, all right? So that's yet a third perspective, right? But notice that although Campbell is criticizing Frankel for saying our search for meaning, actually Frankel lists experience as one of the three paths to meaning. He talked about doing things, experiencing things, and taking a different attitude to our necessary suffering. So notice that Campbell has a beautiful critique. We don't want meaning in the abstract. We want to feel alive, you know? We want to experience in our bodies, in our whole beings. What is it? What is it? We often talk about this in the Cancer Health Program. What makes you feel fully alive, you know? What makes, what just feels alive? So that's what Campbell is pointing to. But in fact, it's something Frankel's already considered. It's one of the three ways that Frankel talks about seeking meaning. Campbell has another beautiful line. Love is the burning point of life. And since all life is sorrowful, so is love. The stronger the love, the more the pain. Love itself is pain, you might say. The pain of being truly alive. Right? So, you know, for most of us, our most powerful encounters with archetypes are in love and loss. They're in love and in grief. Probably most of us in this room have been in love at least once in our lives, right? If you think back to that experience when you were completely in love, right? It didn't make any sense. You know, you thought, this is my soul sister or soul brother, you know. Where did you come from, you know? You know, we, it's so perfect, you know? And, and so that power mystified Freud and Jung till the end of their lives. It was, you know, the power of that is so enormous. And so, there are, of course, there's so many different kinds of love, but the one that we experience 
where the most power perhaps is the experience of being in love. But then particularly if you're a woman, but also for men, the love one feels for a new baby, for a child, right? The, that experience, again, unbelievable power. But what happens to those loves, to the, you know, to the love, let's take the love of a partner, right? What happens to those loves? First you feel, if it doesn't get interrupted or broken up by something else, you know, this is the perfect being for me, you know, we're just, just made for each other. But then as your two boarding houses come together, you begin to notice other, you know, other members of the boarding house that you didn't expect in your beloved. And all of a sudden, it's not quite so perfect. And then you need to begin to stretch that sense of love, right, if you're lucky. And so what happens over time is that that sense of complete enchantment, if you're lucky, gives way to a more mature love that involves a stretching and a give and take and all those kinds of things. But the archetype you have experienced, you know, the power of that archetype, or the power of the archetype of love for a child, or the power of the archetype of anger, you know? How many of us have not been, at some point, furiously angry with somebody? Just an overwhelming, powerful anger. Again, an archetype moving through it, you know? And for the ancients, they didn't see this as just some trivial mood or emotion coming through. They experienced this as coming through them. And therefore, they said, oh, this is another God moving through me. Uh, you know, different philosophies and and and, uh, and spiritual traditions deal with uh, romantic love in different ways. So, for example, the uh, uh, the Stoics thought that romantic love was a kind of illness, and they kind of tried to tamp it down and just not let it take over. You know, I'm never going to do that again. You know, I am never going to do that again. You know, it was too painful. I won't do it again. That's a common response. But for the Sufis, who are the mystics of Islam, their path is the path of love. If you read Rumi or you read Hafiz, you know, these are people who said the friend with a small f leads us to the friend with a big f, you know, that it was through the experience of this cosmic sense of connection with a lover that we are gradually introduced to the true ultimate lover, which is the lover that is masked, that comes to us through the, the physical lover and the physical body. And likewise, uh, Plato had the same feeling, you know, that they encouraged love because that love would lead slowly from the individual to the family and finally upward to the divine. So... Come to the end of my notes, and now I'm just going to wing it. Um, I think I'll talk a little bit about the archetype of the wounded healer, um, because some of you here have had cancer or have people in your life with cancer, or just have lived with other deep wounds. And one of Carl Jung's deepest insights was, it was not original with Jung, but he, he named it for our time. 
was that our wounds, which feel so completely staggering to us, need not only be wounds, but they can also be doorways or windows through which the light can come. And he was drawing on the shamanic traditions. Uh, Michael Harner and Marcia Eliad, two of the great scholars of, of um, shamanic uh, traditions, point out that around the world there are only two constants in all societies. One is the incest taboo, and the other is the appearance in every society of, of the shamans. And the shamans were the women and men who had themselves fallen grievously ill. And in the course of coming near death's door, they realized that if they ever recovered, what they wanted to do with the rest of their lives was to accompany others on this journey. And they also came to understand that the greatest threat in an illness was not physical death, it was soul loss. That if you got disconnected from your soul, you were truly lost. And soul, we now understand, is so deeply connected with meaning and uh, with the place from which we experience the world. So we've been doing the Commonwealth Cancer Health Program at Commonwealth for 30 years. We've done 175 week-long retreats there. I think at Smith Center we've done, what, 20 or more? 30? In the 80s, my God. Wow, time flies when you're... Yeah. So 80 at Smith Center, 170 at Commonwealth, 250 retreats. I haven't done all the Smith Center ones. I've done almost all the Commonwealth ones. And one of the things that becomes readily apparent when you do these retreats is that many of the people on the cancer help programs are on shamanic journeys. They have realized that this tremendous wound, which they did not seek and they did not want, but nonetheless that the only way that they could really bear it was to understand that it was also an opening and that it was an opening through which the light could come. And I don't say this lightly as some easy thing. Truly, I don't. But, but I know it to be true, and I know it in my own life, that my greatest losses, I have been able to understand that in the face of the loss, that there is also light, and that my task in the face of that loss is to find the light. So that was what Jung meant when he said that every expansion of consciousness is one at the cost of suffering, that every time we enter a deep suffering. We enter the space where not only we suffer because we have lost something, but there is this compensatory psychic functioning that it opens us to the light. Jung was also the person who named the archetype of the wise old man or the wise old woman. But he was very careful about this. He didn't believe that any of us could or should claim wisdom. Um, his wisdom was essentially the Socratic wisdom that Socrates knew that he did not know. 
And Jung was the same, even when he talked about the myth of meaning, which he took as the ultimate myth, that life has meaning. He said, you know, I'm not presenting this as some final truth, but it's as far as I've been able to go. It's as far as I've been able to go. So I guess what I'm inviting you to do this evening, just um, as you go home or go on with your lives, is to think about how you look at the meaning in your life, in your personal life, just walking out of here tonight. Do you believe life is meaningless? Many people do. And there's nothing, no harm in that. It's a very legitimate perspective. Sartre, many existentialists, life is meaningless. It's only what we assign to it. Having the courage to face that, that's an existential view. Having the courage to face the meaninglessness. Or do you believe that there is some intrinsic meaning in life? Do you believe that somehow the fact that these archetypes exist all over the world means that there's a collective unconscious, that somehow the existence of these gods, these divine forces, whatever we want to call them, that surround us and that we move in and out of all the time, suggests that we share something fundamental with other human beings about the nature of the numinous and the nature of the divine. And do you believe that in some way that you seek to find or have found or might find that in yourself. Because if you'd like to find it, if you found it in yourself and it feels strong, then whatever form it takes, just bless it and pray for it and strengthen it in every way you can. If you haven't found it, if you side with the many heroic people who say there is no meaning, it's an ancient position, then bless that position and have the courage to stand with it because it is a completely legitimate way. If you are seeking meaning, then seek it. Go for it. It will keep growing for you with prayer, with intention, with purpose. You are likely to find your way. So thank you all for being here. I'm happy to take a few questions, and I'm very grateful to Shanti for making this evening possible. Thank you very much. So please ask me questions I can't answer. Yes. Say your name too, please. And you did the beautiful piece up in the window. Yeah. Oh, those are great questions. So the two questions are, what is the relationship of the archetypes to the gods? And the second is, what happens when people strip away the myth of a people? Let me take the second one first. It's just about the most destructive thing you can do to strip away the myths of a people. And um, it happens in the modern world all the time. There's this process of homogenization going on. And, you know, by the way, films, the stories and movies are archetypes. 
advertising is an unbelievably powerful system of archetypes, which, go, which are designed to go directly into the unconscious. We think we can watch ads without ha them having an effect on us. In fact, those images go right into the unconsciousness and act on us. So what happens all the time is that as indigenous people uh, around the world enter the global marketplace, their mythologies are stripped away and they are given you know, these mythologies of advertising and so on and so forth. So, so there are many different responses around the world. You know, one is people trying to adopt to the modern world, to find their way, find a form of meaning in the modern world. Uh, and the other is um, fundamentalisms of every kind, that fundamentalisms are an effort to reassert uh, the integrity of an ancient belief system in the face of the acidity of modernity. So, that, so it's a it's a terrible thing, and it's one of the many many forms. Uh, you know, we think about um, uh, we think about the ecological destruction of biodiversity. Actually, the places in the world that have the greatest natural biodiversity also have the greatest cultural biodiversity. And so, when the bulldozers come in and they cut down the trees and so on. They also destroy the peoples that live there. And so we lose, we lose languages uh, at a constant, amazing, you know. So I could carry on about this, but you can tell that I have very strong feelings about the destruction of indigenous cultures and, and not just indigenous cultures, you know, uh, contemporary cultures where, uh, where these myths, living myths by which people live are being stripped away. Yeah, it's true for many, and there are also, um, there are also many cultures uh, of people who come to America that actively try to resist that as much as they can. So some try to jump into it, others try to resist it. Um, uh, so with regard to your, your second question, what is the relationship of the archetypes to the gods? So in archetypal psychology, uh, the view would be that the gods are archetypes. In other words, they aren't the only archetypes. There are lots of others, mother, father, sister, brother, you know, all the others. But that among the archetypes, and among the most powerful archetypes, are the gods. So very often in the god systems of the world, because god systems come out of creation myths, and the creation myths are typically family myths, so typically there is a mother, a father, and a mother, and then there are, you know, the children and so on and so forth. So, you know, that system is, is replicating uh, the family system at an archetypal level of the gods. So, you know, Zeus actually took over as the chief Greek god after two previous chief gods had been killed or slain or whatever. So there are all these, you know, mythic structures of who takes over as the alpha god, uh, you know. Other question? Yes. Was I ever involved with the Association for Humanistic Psychology? Uh, just tangentially, yeah. I mean, I, you know, knew the great figures, but I didn't. Susan, that's a great question. So Susan's question is, um, in this perspective, what catalyzes different forces, different archetypes moving forward or backward? <clears throat> so, as I understand the archetypal psychology system, um, 
because the different gods, the different gods, let's talk of them as gods, let's just take the Greek example, but they don't get along with each other. They have jealousies among each other. They all want attention, so on and so forth. So if you begin to give too much attention to one god, the other gods get jealous or angry or, or whatever. So there's a, a constant... It's like a family, you know, if you pay all the attention to one child or, you know, whatever, the other children get, you know, unhappy. So, um, so part of the dynamic is, um, is the fact that the different subpersonalities, the different gods have different agendas. In uh, Hillman's sense, you know, when he speaks of our souls as boarding houses, some come out and play by the rules during the day. Others come out and are streetwalkers at night, and others never come out of their rooms at all, right? And so they're all playing by different sets of rules. They all have different desire. And so if we try to be just this one thing, um, it typically doesn't work out very well. In some systems, that is the ego. In Asajoli's system, it's the witness point at the middle of the egg. Um, but in Asajoli's system, that witness point has the power of attention. It can choose what to pay attention to within certain limits. And it is surrounded by, in that, it is surrounded by the will. Now, one of the things that Asajoli did that was not true in, in most traditions of psychology and modern psychology. He gave great importance to the will as a force, which William James also did. But you don't find the will very much in Freud or Jung. Um, and for Asajoli, the will was absolutely central. And so he thought a lot about not the will as forceful will, as pushing to doing something, but the will as a power of intention. So... There is some capacity of the witnessing self to use the power of the will to move in a direction. But the what comes to mind is in the Bhagavad Gita, uh, uh, Arjuna with Krishna as his charioteer and the horses, and and the image of of humans as in chariots with these wild horses that we can barely control. And typically in some of the images, one horse is trying to go up and the other horse is trying to go down. Now, in the West, normally we would think about the horse trying to go down as the bad horse. But in this archetypal system, the downward moving horse is taking us towards soul the upward-moving horse is taking us towards spirit. And so there's that constant tension between all the voices of soul and our aspirations of spirit and our efforts, which can easily be overwhelmed by the power of these archetypes to move toward, to move in one direction or move in another. But you do it most skillfully, at least in my human experience, as well as in, in these traditions. 
you do it most skillfully if you're not trying to bludgeon or suppress all the other archetypes, but you are acknowledging them, you're giving them at least as much as you can of what they need so that they can allow that which you are trying to develop and grow to move in the right direction. One last question. Okay, so the two questions were, um, what about ancestors and how they relate to this? And the second, perhaps to talk a little bit about healing circles, which I'll, I'll close with. So, <clears throat> you know, in many of the traditions, ancestors are very much alive and with us. So in those traditions, those ancestors are powerful, personal archetype. Um, and I would say, from my own limited experience, it's not just ancestors, it's people we love who have, you know. I mean, let me tell you, in the Cancer Help Program, I started out agnostic about um, whether something lives on. But if you spend 30 years doing this, it's an awful lot of... Um, experiences of, of people communicating. Um, so I believe very much that not only ancestors, but others that we've been close to, or perhaps not only friends, but certainly friends, um, are, are present. Um, yeah, I was going to say something. Somebody sent me a note most amazing story, but it came from somebody I trust. This is going to sound really something. It was about a family with an autistic child who'd never spoken. And um, I think at the, at the suggestion of a psychic, oh, the, the, the mother was a Holocaust survivor, or the grandmother was a Holocaust survivor. And at the suggestion of a psychic, the grandmother or the grandfather sat down with this autistic child and said to him, I just want you to know that you are not responsible for the Holocaust. That is not something that you carry responsibility for. And according to my source, this child calmed and began to speak for the first time. Now, Take that for what it's worth, I don't know. But, you know, it seems unbelievable, but the source was somebody who, you know, a good source. So, um, so I, I have personally had experiences, both difficult experiences and wonderful experiences of, of people who have passed coming to me, you know, and I, all I can tell you is I have the experience. I can't claim ontological objective. But for me, these are archetypes with autonomous power in my life. You know. So with respect to healing circles, and I'll close with this. Um, for those of you who don't know Commonweal, we're a nonprofit center. You can find us at commonweal.org. Uh, we're a nonprofit center out in Bolinas, California. Been there for almost 40 years. And we have 12 different programs in four fields of healing, learning, caring for the earth, and justice. And um, 
And these programs are characterized by being run by very extraordinary program directors who call their own shots. They basically have to raise their own money and they call their own shots. So, um, so our work is simply to provide a community uh, where these extraordinary program directors feel at home and, and enjoy doing their life work. So in the course of 40 years, as programs rise and they do their work sometimes for 10, 15, 20, 30 years, and then at some point somebody retires or whatever, and then the program is complete and we look for the next program. So um, my part, in addition to sort of watching over it, has been uh, to help invent some of the programs, the Cancer Hub Program, um, a program called the Collaborative on Health and the Environment, which is a, a global program of scientists and others who look at how the environment affects our health. Um, something called the New School at Commonweal, which has 170 podcasts of conversations with thought leaders, including many that would interest the kind of people who show up here. And so the, the thing I'm working on now and I have no idea whether it'll work or not, but I've been taking chances all my life. There's something that Susan and I began to talk about when Susan was the executive director of Commonweal. And something Rachel and I thought about for many years. <clears throat> Rachel used to say she wished we could take the transformative power of the Cancer Health Program, which truly transforms life, and if we could put it in a box and make it available to everybody who couldn't come on these week-long retreats. So Healing Circles is an effort to put the Cancer Health Program in a box. So how do you take a program, which is intensive week-long program of yoga, meditation, psychological support, three massages, great vegetarian food, you know, uh, fabulous psychotherapy, you know, conversations with me and the psychotherapist. How do you do that? You know, how do you, how do you find the heart of it? So, you know, I came to the conclusion that of all the pieces of it, the heart of the heart of the heart of this is what we've been talking about tonight. It's how we find meaning in our lives, how we find meaning in the face of our great losses, you know. And, and I do know that there are programs around the world that are not inexpensive residential programs, although we keep ours as inexpensive as possible, where people who have faced great loss go and find meaning. And so I'll give you one example, which is a great inspiration for me, which is Alcoholics Anonymous. Here is a program that was started, what, 80 years ago or something like that, 70 years ago. And all over the world, it doesn't work for everybody. It probably only works for about 10% of alcoholics, but that's a lot of people. And all over the world, alcoholics who believe that Alcoholics Anonymous might work for them can create these places. Any two people can create an Alcoholics Anonymous, any two alcoholics. And they don't have laws, but they have traditions. And, you know, they've worked out this system whereby people can come and have these deeply soulful experiences with each other and comfort and support each other and help each other 
because part of the power of Alcoholics Anonymous is the recognition that the person helping another alcoholic gets at least as much from it as the person being helped. So imagine, in a simple sense, that we could create an Alcoholics Anonymous for people with cancer. Imagine that you didn't have to pay anything, that it was all run on a contribution basis. Now, I don't know if that's possible, but for the last uh, six or eight months, we've been acting as if it were possible. Because the way I've always believed in starting things at Commonweal is not to look for a lot of money to start them, but just to start and to make your mistakes on a small scale and to learn by doing. And gradually, as it emerges, perhaps you discover how to do it. So, so Healing Circles has... You can imagine it like a triangle. And the top of the triangle is how you find meaning in the face of cancer. And there you could put the, you know, wisdom, love, you know, service, parts, how you find meaning. The next level is, if you're going to deal with this illness, all the evidence shows that the healthier you are, the better you'll do. And so... You know, as Dean Ornish demonstrated with heart disease, diet, stress reduction, exercise, and finding meaning or support are the four pillars of health promotion. So that's the next layer of healing circle. And then below that are the five areas of choice that everybody with cancer faces. Choices in healing, in medical therapies, in integrative approaches, in pain and suffering, and in death and dying. And below that are all the different modalities that one can use in this healing journey. So whether it's art therapy or music or dance or journaling or, you know, all the different things one can do. So this is just an approximate idea. So you start by bringing people together with a conversation about how do you, you know, how do you find meaning, which is what Alcoholics Anonymous does. And if you can create a way that people can have those soul-oriented conversations, it actually works. So then... What we are actively involved in now is, okay, what are the methods that actually work to help people have those conversations? Because most cancer support groups, sadly, are second or third rate. You know, they're in a hospital. People sit around and complain about therapies and doctors. They are depressing, or at least a lot of them are depressing. And even the better ones don't get to the soul level. They don't get to the deepest level at which the great work is done. But there are people who've studied how to do this. So, for example, there's a Quaker named Parker Palmer that some of you may know about who's done extraordinary work in this area through the Center for Courage and Renewal. And we're using his approach to what he calls circles of trust as one of the templates that we're exploring to say, does this template work, right? Uh, there's another a template called Peer Healing Circles uh, by Christina Baldwin up in Washington State, and we're looking at that template. So we're not trying to invent the wheel. If the wheel's been invented, this is going to be an open source system. It's not going to be one size fits all. We're creating a learning community of people who want to try to discover how we create first-rate healing circles for people with cancer. And everybody who's interested will be welcomed free into this learning community. And then we will try to identify best practices, which we will put out and continue to 
accept criticism and to recognize that nobody, not everybody will agree with our best practices. But somehow we hope to do that. So working with Shanti here at Smith Center, we hope, and it's a hope, that we can discover a way to explore this in Washington, just as we're exploring it in uh, Bolinas, in the East Bay, in, Cal in uh, the East Bay in San Francisco, uh, in Portland, and in the Seattle area. So those are the places that we have pods already established of two or three people in each place that are working on this. And we'll learn together. We'll make our mistakes together. But even if we don't succeed on a large scale, this is the thing about this kind of work. If we help one person, it will matter. If we help a dozen people, it'll matter. If it ends up over the next 10 years, we help a hundred or a couple of thousand people, it will matter. And with God's grace, or with the grace of the divine, or whatever aspects of soul and spirit come together, if it turns out that we can create a learning community that really moves this forward in the world, that would be the greatest blessing. So thank you all for coming. It's been a joy. And please do what you can to support Shanti Norris and Smith Center. It's a great work. Uh, Susan and I love it and support it dearly. And uh, we just ask you to contribute your energies in any way you can. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a talk given by Michael Lerner on archetypal psychology at Smith Center for Healing and the Arts in Washington, D.C. Thank you for joining us. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio engineer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Port O' Monkeys. Please visit our website at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on Facebook. Thank you for joining us.